Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. My guest today is Michael Hannon. Michael is assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Nottingham. He works primarily in epistemology with interests in skepticism, fallibilism, and questions of epistemic value. He's also interested in the intersection of epistemology and political philosophy. In fact, Michael is the founder of the Political Epistemology Network. His new book is titled, What is the Point of Knowledge? A Function-First Epistemology. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. Now, epistemologists working in the traditional modes have typically sought to discover the necessary and sufficient conditions under which one has knowledge. This has led to several tricky philosophical problems, as I'm sure many readers will be aware. Perhaps the most notorious of these are the problems that deal with skepticism. For it seems that any analysis of knowledge admits of cases where the analysis is satisfied, and yet knowledge seems to have not been secured. This has led some philosophers to seek other starting points for epistemology. Perhaps one should begin with the anti-skeptical premise that there are clear cases of knowledge, and then from there attempt to provide analyses of its constitutive elements like belief, justification, evidence, and so on. But alas, this approach also has invited difficulties. In his new book, What is the Point of Knowledge?, Michael Hannon takes up a different approach. He argues that the place to begin in epistemology is with the question of the function of knowledge, or more precisely, he proposes to begin with an examination of the function of the concept of knowledge, the purpose for the sake of which we evaluate others as knowers. The result is what he calls a function-first epistemology. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about. But also as usual, let's begin with our guest. Hello, Michael. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Um, why don't you start us off uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I am Canadian. I grew up in Toronto, um, and I did my undergraduate there. I was first a criminology major, um, and I think I went into that just because I didn't really know what else to go into, and it sounded cool. Uh, I was also told that uh, Batman majored in criminology. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, it became uh, quickly clear to me that I have you know, neither the financial resources nor uh, physical skills to be Batman. So instead, I uh, turned to philosophy. Um, and it was really uh, a course on free will that got me interested first in philosophy. And so that was the kind of question or puzzle that gripped me. Um, and then I started taking more courses and ended up uh, doing this double major between criminology and philosophy. 
And then eventually I um, applied for both graduate school and law school at the same time. And um, I was really lucky. I, I managed to get into this one-year uh, MPhil program at Cambridge and um, was just really delighted to go there because um, I ended up having an interest in metaethics around that time. And some great people were there. So Simon Blackburn, uh, Halford Lillehammer, and so forth. Um, so I, yeah, I moved to Cambridge, planning to do this one year uh, MPhil, and then was going to come back to Toronto to do law after that. Um, but yeah, when I was there, I just fell in love with the program, with the town, met some amazing people, um, including actually the, the woman who designed the cover for the book, um, which is probably the nicest thing about the book, actually. Uh, so well, it is a nice cover, but I wouldn't, I don't know. It's the nicest thing. Uh, well, that's nice of you to say, but, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I spent, uh, the first year at Cambridge and then ended up sticking around for the PhD. Um, and that was when my interest shifted to something closer to the book actually. So, uh, I was doing metaethics and then got more interested in questions about moral epistemology, which led me just to kind of straight up epistemology. Um, and yeah, at the time I was really struggling to find a topic for my thesis because in the UK they get you to go straight into writing your thesis. You don't do any pre-thesis course requirements or anything like that. So um, it took a while and my, my supervisor, um, he suggested that I read this book called Knowledge in the State of Nature um, by Edward Craig, which was published in 1990. And the first time I read it, um, I I really didn't get anything from it. I was just kind of like, oh, this is weird. Uh, it's very unlike a lot of the epistemology I was reading at that time. And my, um, yeah, I sort of just put it aside and then spent the next year still floundering around looking for a topic. Um, and then for some reason, my supervisor again said, well, why don't you look at that book one more time? And I don't know how he knew, but the, the second time around when I'd read this, um, it was just like a light went on and I realized that, this is exactly what I wanted to write about. So it was Edward Craig who first started thinking about um, the point of epistemic evaluation, what we're doing when we say that people know things. Um, and yeah, so it was around that time that the ideas for this book started to take shape in a very early form. And that was about eight years ago. Um, yeah. And then I guess, you know, the rest is history. Uh, I'm not sure why at the time, not, pe not many people were focusing on Craig uh, on his work in epistemology. Um, and I was looking to apply his ideas to some contemporary philosophical problems. And that's what eventually led me uh, to write this book. Well, fabulous. Um, uh, it's always interesting to hear, you know, people getting into philosophy by way of um, some other thing that they thought they were interested in. So um, criminology is a new one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, it, it, I have a I have a longtime friend uh, since I was two actually who um, started college as a chemistry major, and then discovered that he was interested in chemistry really because he wanted to be a cook. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, <laughs> that seems uh, somehow even like more tangential than my connection. I suppose, but yeah, that's amazing. Um, so uh, let's get on to the book. Um, you know, so we've already both uh, sort of um, given some indication that the book is um, picking up on a what we might say a new sort of tack in epistemology. So uh, the first chapter of the book um, includes a, a very helpful, I would say, canvas of some leading methodological approaches in epistemology. Um, and, uh, of course, um, your treatment of um, 
uh, those different methodological approaches not intended to be exhaustive, uh, but rather um, you're looking to provide a rich enough background so that you can highlight your um, sort of methodological stance, if we can call it that, which is the function first uh, proposal. Um, so maybe you can help uh, the listeners uh, sort of get their bearings a little bit by telling us a little uh, bit in general about what the function first approach is and how it differs with some of the more familiar, perhaps, um, approaches in epistemology. Sure. Um, so this comes out of the book that I mentioned, uh, Edward Craig's um, Knowledge in the State of Nature. And the guiding idea, in a way, is that... Um, to better understand our epistemic practices, our epistemic concepts or norms and things like that, um, what we should do is we should think about what they're for. So, for example, uh, and this is the focus of the book, if you want to understand what knowledge is, then you should be thinking about um, the function of the concept of knowledge, what it is that we're doing when we say of other people that they know things or why it is that humans think and speak in terms of knowing um, and of course, this doesn't just apply to knowledge. There's also, you know, a bevy of other kinds of epistemological concepts that you might be interested in. So why is it that we think of um, justification or why do we speak in terms of wisdom or understanding and things like that? And so uh, the function first approach is one where um, the, the theorist, I guess, asks questions such as uh, why is it that humans think and speak in these, these specific terms, or um, what might life be like if our current practices lacked uh, you know, a practice of epistemic evaluation or lacked a concept of knowledge, um, as well as thinking about questions like, do these sorts of concepts uh, in epistemic evaluation carry much weight in science or philosophy or daily life? And so the first chapter of the book tries to, in a way, um, sketch out this methodology, but really I think the best way to understand what it's doing is to see it applied. But the first chapter is, yeah, it, it, it tries to show in a way what the function first epistemologist is up to by, as you said, um, comparing it with some other, I think, leading approaches that you'd find um, in the literature and epistemology. So the four main ones that I run through are the classic approach of um, what people call conceptual analysis or reductive conceptual analysis. And this is a way of uh, doing philosophy that's come under attack in recent years. So I think it's one that is probably the one that philosophers have been practicing for the longest. It's very, um, very much a part of philosophical history. But within the last you know, couple decades, people have been, I think, more and more suspicious of this idea that um, the way we come to understand the nature of things like knowledge or truth or justice is by um, figuring out what their necessary and sufficient conditions are. And so um, what I'm trying to do is highlight that approach and say where function-first epistemology is a bit different in the sense that it doesn't go into philosophical investigation presupposing that there is something like necessary and sufficient conditions for your target concept or the, or the target thing that you're interested in. Um, and that sort of old-school way of thinking is one that uh, in some sense can like shackle your investigations if you presuppose that that's the kind of thing philosophers should, should be in the business of. So I compare it with this reductive conceptual analysis approach as well as some other ones. So another one that's mentioned that's quite popular in epistemology these days is uh, Timothy Williamson's Knowledge First Epistemology. And so I don't spend too much time on it, but I try and indicate how this program and mine have very different starting points in the sense that um, Williamson thinks that knowledge should be taken as primitive and we use that to explain other kinds of 
uh, concepts in epistemology. And I'm still in a way engaged with part of the traditional program because what I try and do is explain the, um, I use notions like truth to explain um, or arrive at an understanding of uh, what knowledge is. So I kind of compare these two approaches. And then the other two ones that I mention in the first chapter are um, what's called reverse engineering epistemic evaluations. And basically this is people who first look at what our actual practices are and then try to reverse engineer their way to a story about the function of these practices. So that approach is actually, I think, very closely related to mine, but I also try and explain why they're different. Um, and the main difference, I guess, is that uh, people go in for this kind of reverse engineering, take our practices as they are, and they end up describing our concepts and practices um, as they actually exist. So it's a very descriptive approach. And what I hope to show is that, while I think this is a perfectly worthwhile endeavor, what's interesting about the function first approach is that it creates space for this kind of genuine epistemic normativity by allowing theorists to think about um, not just what our practices are like, but what the aims of these practices are and how they can be improved upon if we're going to make them better. Um, so that's one way I try and tease apart these two seemingly closely related approaches. And then the last one, um, which I'll just mention briefly, has to do with um, epistemological naturalism. And here I focus particularly on the work of Hilary Kornblith, who's interested in, as he says, not the concept of knowledge, but rather knowledge itself, which he treats as a natural kind. And I look at this approach because I think it starkly contrasts my interests and what I think is in a way the, the right way of thinking about knowledge, which is not as a natural kind, but rather as a kind of social or artifactual kind, something that's deeply related to humans and their interests and is responsive to us and the kinds of beings we are. And so um, I try and argue in the first chapter that it's mistaken to think that we can understand that there's this thing out there and knowledge that's somehow independent of and different from our practice of epistemic evaluation. Really the primary focal point should be our practice of epistemic evaluation. And it's deeply suspicious to me to think that there is this other thing that exists outside of that, namely knowledge itself. So that's kind of what the first chapter does. It basically tries to look at these um, other popular approaches because they provide nice points of contact for highlighting some differences. And then once that's done, I try and move on to show that um, by adopting this kind of function first approach, we can hopefully gain new insights on debates that have become a bit stalled, I think, in the literature where it's unclear which direction to go. And so the hope is that... Um, by using this new approach that derives from the work of Edward Craig, um, hopefully we can resolve some of the issues that at least interest me in epistemology um, and thereby illustrate the important role that this kind of method is going to play in philosophy. That's the sort of hope of the book. Right, right. And so I think that that last point is is important. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, in philosophy, there are a lot of uh, examples, not only in epistemology, I should add, of um you know, cases where, you know, the, when people are recommending a new starting point for some area, the, um, 
part of what's going on in, in many cases is a kind of changing of all the questions, right? So that the thought is that we start in this new area and then we see that the traditional problems aren't really problems or can be just ignored and that there are these other interesting things to talk about. Um, but I take it that the function first approach is a, um, although it's a non-traditional starting point for epistemology, it is nonetheless a starting point for epistemology in that um, uh, your hope, as you were just saying, is that the function first approach is going to be able to say interesting things uh, about or shed some interesting new light on um, easily recognized uh, philosophical problems, including skepticism. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's actually a, a really nice way of putting it. And I hadn't really considered it in those terms, but yeah, some people who go in for new approaches tend to think that the old debates themselves are things that should be, um, you know, put in the bin. And we should instead be not just asking new questions, but focusing on new topics. Whereas the hope of this book is to show how, well, actually, there's a lot of things in epistemology as it currently is um, that are of interest and that could be answered. But answering them does require, in a way, uh, either taking a new angle or figuring out how to ask the question in a slightly different manner. But once you've figured out that angle, you can then use that as a tool to um, make a lot of progress on existing questions. So, yeah, it's got one foot in both camp in that sort of way, I guess. Yeah, fabulous. Um, so uh, the central claim uh, in the book, uh, as far as uh, I've understood it, is that the purpose of the concept of knowledge is to enable us to identify reliable informants. Um, that is, we've got the concept. What we use the concept for is to identify uh, reliable um, uh, sources of information, um, and this leads you to endorse what you call an objectivized standard for being a knower. Um, but it turns out that that objectivized standard is also a communal or social standard. So um, there are at least three things going on in there. <laughs> the reliable informant part, maybe that's two things, uh, but reliable informants, the objectivized standard, and the, and the sort of communal nature of that standard. Um, uh, you, you know, it, it's, a, it's a tall order, but can you uh, sort of help fit those things together for us? Sure, yeah. So, um, this, so this notion of an objectivized standard, it's something of a term of art. So I'll just quickly try and say what that is and then how it connects up with the reliable informant stuff. Um, so objectivization is supposed to be roughly a kind of process where some concept becomes um, less attached or less tied to the particular concerns of some individual and instead starts to play a more social role. And so the book starts with this idea of a particular individual inquirer. And this is someone with the problem of trying to figure out the answer to a question. They want to determine the truth on some issue. Um, and it's that humans in general need true beliefs. And so we look for sources of information and we're massively dependent on other people. And so we tend to look to others for most of our information. But of course, the problem is that other people vary in terms of their reliability. And so we need some sort of way to figure out how to distinguish the people on whom we should rely from the people that we shouldn't rely on. And then the thought is, well, that's what the practice of epistemic evaluations for. In particular, this is why we have a concept of knowledge. So we use knowledge to mark out those people um, on whom we should rely when we need information that will help us engage in our everyday endeavors on which we can act and things like that. So the objectivization here is that 
we start with the idea of this individual who's interested in finding someone who's just kind of reliable for them and for their own particular needs and interests right then and there. But of course, our interests in, tend to be much more um, socially extended. Uh, so we're not always just interested in finding an informant for ourselves here and now. And this is what takes us to kind of a second part of the story, which is imagining a more complex situation with this community of inquirers and this community of people who have diverse kinds of interests and different cognitive abilities and different different types of reliabilities. Um, and they have to collaborate in order to achieve their goals. And so in this kind of community, what happens is that we need a way of marking out individuals who are not just good sources of information for us here and now, for one particular person, for one particular inquiry, but rather count as reliable enough in general. And so objectivization is this kind of process that moves us from the this initial starting point of having a concept of knowledge or a concept of proto-knowledge, as some people call it, where it's just for identifying someone reliable enough for me here and now, to this more socially directed, extended picture where we're identifying individuals who count as reliable enough for members of our community, for people with diverse sets of interests, who are engaging in different kinds of projects for different purposes. And we don't really have a clear sense of what all these projects and purposes are, so we tend to have to um, move, in a way, the standard for reliability up to a point where someone counts as a knower if they're roughly good enough to satisfy these broad standards of the community. And so objectivization is this kind of backbone to the story, which moves us from a concept that's just for flagging an informant that's good enough for an individual to one that's closer to our familiar concept of knowledge, where we identify people for many purposes because we're interested in like pooling, sharing, transmitting information across space and time. Um, and then we end up with what's supposed to look like our, our everyday concept of knowledge. Um, good. One further question. Does this... Um... I guess this this um, this view. Uh, we've got the concept to identify reliable informants. The concept of a reliable informant is sort of responsive to this objectivized standard. Um, uh, does this view put you in the middle of a debate between people who are variantists about uh, justification and? Uh, invariantists and various kinds of views about um, what the standard is uh, relative to? It does, in a way. So I used to be more interested in that debate. I used to um, try and argue that if you go in for this story where we have an objectivized concept of a good informant, where someone counts as a knower if they're good enough for the community in general, then you could go one of two ways. Um, so one way you can go is say, well, there's got to be a fixed standard that's good enough for the community. Um, and whenever you meet that standard, you qualify as a knower and um, it's settled. So the semantics settle at that level and there's just kind of one fixed standard for knowledge and that's what makes you an invariantist. So that's one way this story could go. The way that I used to tell the story was different. It was that... Um, well, we're interested, the point of the concept of knowledge is to identify reliable informants. And then I argue that who counts as a reliable informant depends on the context. It depends on things like uh, how much is at stake, how urgent the situation is, things like that. Um, so I suggested previously that there was a kind of movement where knowledge was contextual, not invariant, precisely because who counts as reliable is a context-sensitive matter. Um, but I no longer engage in that debate just because I think in a way it's 
totally misguided. And that's the part of the book that I think is probably going to upset the most people. Um, so part of the book is backing away from fighting about when, you know, it's strictly speaking true to say that someone knows something versus when it's merely warrantedly assertable. Um, and this is a debate that contextualists and their rivals, the invariantists have and have been having for decades now. And yeah, part of the, part of the project of the book is to take in a way this radical turn where I say, um, there maybe is no determinate answer to that question. Indeed, if we're interested just in thinking about, um, the purpose of the concept of knowledge, then we're in fact led to the idea that there's no reason to think that the semantics is going to settle out a way that allows us to determine the answer to that question, whether it's invariant or context sensitive. Good. Um, so the, the, the resulting view of knowledge then is a fallibilist view. Um, you, the function first approach gives us this um, conception of knowledge according to which one can know on the basis of evidence that is less than conclusive. Um, now, the traditional problem for fallibilists uh, is the what you call the th- and others call the threshold problem. That is, uh, on the basis of you know what level of less than conclusive evidence does it make sense to say that somebody is in fact an hour? Um, you think that the f- function first approach can sort of settle the threshold problem, or at least um, uh, make progress on it? Um, can you tell us how? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the threshold problem in a way is really two closely related problems. So one is trying to figure out what specific level of justification is required for knowledge. And if you're a fallibilist, you think it's less than the most, less than certainty, less than um, truth guaranteeing or however you want to formulate it. Um, so there's this first question about how much justification is required for knowledge. And then there's this second question of, well, assuming we've settled that, first issue, why is it that some specific level of justification short of certainty or short of um, certitude? Uh, yeah. Why is it that that specific level of justification makes such an important difference to our cognitive situation? Why is it that we move from not knowing to knowing just by meeting the standard? Um, and so the way I try and solve this problem, which is one that basically I think is a problem for every fallibilist theory of knowledge is to argue that um, if we think about the social role of knowledge and we think about it in terms of identifying reliable informants, I try and suggest that the level of justification that's required for someone to count as a knower where this falls short of certainty is going to be, in a way, whatever level it is that makes the agent reliable enough on some issue um, for the people in their, in their epistemic community, for other people to rely on them, uh, for other people who might want to draw on this information. And I'm a bit, um, I guess, hesitant about it in the book because it's something of a vague proposal. And I do say that there's, we can try and further our understanding about this by thinking about it in terms of relevant alternatives, which is a very kind of popular way of um, thinking about the standards for knowledge. And I argue that there are certain alternatives that, get in the game of being relevant precisely because they're the ones that members in our community um, take to be the kinds of things that have to be ruled out in order to Mm -hmm. count as reliable enough. And then there are ones that don't fall into that set. Um, And it's either because they're statistically just far too unlikely to be to occur. And therefore we don't really have to consider them or they're just um, really radical, like brains and fat scenarios and things like that. And this is where it touches on the, the chapter on skepticism. But yeah, the, the thought is we can explain both um, 
how much justification for knowledge is required and why it matters by thinking about what it's doing, by thinking about, well, it's enough for us it's enough to be good enough for the members of our community. And it matters precisely because we need to mark important distinctions between the people on whom we should rely and the people on whom uh, we shouldn't rely. Um, and that's how I try and go about yeah, solving this, this threshold problem for pallet lists. And can you, can you say just a little bit more about good enough for the community? Is, is that a, what kind of standard is that? That's um, good enough to be found to be a reliable informant by members of the community or good enough to be a reliable deliverer of actionable information that leads to success. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's a, it's, it is a really kind of tricky thing to spell out. And in the book, I try and do it by way of example, because I think that's sort of the the clearest way to get a grip on the standard. And um, some of the examples I provide are things like, you know, uh, if you wanted to know how, if you wanted to know who won, you know, the baseball game that was on last night, um, a reliable way of doing that is by reading the newspaper. And if you read it in a newspaper, then that counts as good enough for most people in your community, but it might not count as good enough for some people with particularly pressing concerns, like if there were life and death stakes at the issue at, at issue. And so part of what I try and do is say which interests of the community are the ones we really need to take into account. And um, yeah, part of that project is saying, well, it's, we have to consider the sorts of things that normally come up or um, the kinds of people who might reasonably be taken to rely on the information that we have. And uh, if we go in for thinking that it's always going to be incredibly high stakes, then it looks like nobody's really going to qualify as a knower because it's quite hard to get information that's reliable enough um, in many cases when like life and death uh, matters are at hand. So they get in a way bracketed out because they're not part of the um, this, they're not part of the practice that allows us to mark the distinctions which enable us to say who's reliable enough for ordinary purposes. So then, the standard then, when you say reliable enough, I mean, I'm, uh, just for the, um, uh, just for the sake maybe of, of some listeners who. Um, might hear reliable enough community standard that there's some um, uh, some kind of Rordian style, you know, what you what, what other people let you get away with saying is what knowledge is, and that's not that's not the proposal, right? Um, I, I don't I don't want to go that far. I don't think uh, I don't think people <laughs> would let me get away with saying that, anyways. Uh, in which case, it'd be a problem. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's that's a that, that's a refutation of the Rordian exactly, program yeah. right there. <laughs> Nobody let him get away with saying it. He has to retract. Exactly. It. Yeah. Um, no, it's more about so that it does have. I mean, all I'm saying is that the the, the good enough does have something more to do or something to do with the you know the the information that you deliver to people is good enough for them to use for the purposes that people in this epistemic community are typically. Um, uh, it's good enough to use for the purposes that the, the people in the community want information of that kind for. Yeah, right? I mean, their inquiries have to end at some point, right? And so there's got to be a point at which it counts as, um, yeah, we've done enough for us to now use this as a basis for action. Um, yeah, if the standard gets set, set too high, then it just paralyzes action. So it's tied to this kind of practical considerations about what we're doing with the information.
Good. Um, so uh, w- one question that you take up uh, uh, with a, in a whole chapter in the book, which was one that um, you know I found myself sort of asking myself from the very beginning of the book um, is uh, why should why should we think that the concept of knowledge has a single function? Yeah, I really wish I put this not as like the fifth chapter, but as maybe the first or the second, because <laughs> I can I can imagine that it's a very it's going to be a very common thing that you know if anyone is reading the book that they're going to be thinking, well, why should you know? Presumably, there's many uh, purposes that we that, that knowledge can serve, and so why should we just think that this is the one? Um, so yeah, I, I I should have foregrounded that a bit more, but I do have this chapter where I try and deal with this because I think it's the most common objection to the proposal. Um, so I, I don't actually think that the concept of knowledge has just one function or just one purpose. I sometimes maybe misleadingly speak of the purpose of the concept of knowledge. And I do try and footnote away early on um, of indicating that. Uh, I don't mean by this that there's just, we should think that there's just one function or just one thing that we're doing when we say that people know stuff, but rather the the aim is to argue that there's in some sense one primary or one central function which is the function to identify reliable informants and it's this function that explains why this concept has entered our conceptual repertoire in the first place um but then once we've got this concept we can use it to do all sorts of other things so in arguing that the the purpose of the concept of knowledge is to identify reliable informants I, i really don't mean to be suggesting that we don't do other things with it Um, And the way I try and clarify this in the book is by distinguishing some different ways of talking about the function of a concept. So one way of marking the distinction is to say there's a difference between what the function of something is uh, as opposed to what it might function as. And I then try and give some analogies to help illuminate this point. So, for instance, one that I use throughout the book is uh, a hammer. And I say that, you know, it seems like the primary function of a hammer is to like, you know, hit nails into things, but that's not to suggest that hammers can't be used now that we've got them for like multiple different things. Right. So the example that I use in the book are, it can be used for like a paperweight or a murder weapon and all sorts of other things. Um, But that doesn't mean that just because it serves these multiple functions, we should think that they're all equally good or that none of them are prior to others. Rather, um, what I try and argue is that in the same way that a hammer can only be used for these sort of derivative functions because of facts about it that are responding to its original function of like hitting nails into things, that's what explains why a hammer has a certain shape and weight. And those aspects explain why it can then be used for, you know, murder weapons and paperweights and things like that. And so similarly with knowledge, I try and say that there's this difference between what we might do with the knowledge description on a particular occasion. So sometimes we might say that someone knows something just because we're looking to encourage them, right? You can say like, I know you can do it. Um, Or you might say that someone knows something uh, because you're trying to console them. Like you'll say, Oh, I know you're going to get through this, even though the evidence really goes against it. And so you don't know it in this kind of epistemic sense. Um, Yeah. So what I try and do is contrast the point of specific attributions of knowledge or like the speech act of, ascribing knowledge to someone with what I call the primary point of the concept. Um, and that's the one that I think is attached to this notion of flagging reliable informants. And that's what gives rise to the practice of having a, this notion of epistemic evaluation in the first place. I see. And um, remind me, and, 
you you do make something um, a, a couple times in the book of um, uh, the fact that um, knowledge is one of the handful of concepts that it seems um, uh, all natural languages um, have some word to pick out that concept. Is that right? Yeah, there's this really fascinating research program out in um, Australia called Natural Semantic Metalanguage, and one of their one of their big claims is that there's only a small number of words that count as like semantic primes in the sense that whatever word they're expressed as in English, um, they find an equivalent, a meaning equivalent in all natural languages. And uh, so the word no is on this list, which is pretty amazing, I think, because a lot of other words that you'd think would be universal. So words for seemingly universal mental states, like beliefs or doubts, um, as well as words for like seemingly universal emotional states, like sad, uh, don't find um, precise meaning equivalents across all natural languages. But these uh, empirically informed linguists say that um, you do find this with nose, which uh, I, I think in a way just provides further support for this idea that um, this the concept of knowledge is playing a really important role in human life. So important, in fact, that it seems that no human society can, can get by without it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Can, just for my own curiosity, um, do you know anything about what the criteria, if, if that's the right term to use, for um, you know for meaning equivalence is in this research program? Yeah, they. I mean, I have to look back at it. It's been a few years, but what they try and do is they use um, some really basic terms uh, to create sentences that can be translated in basically any language, and they like. Um, you know, uh, Sally sees that something. Uh, and then they give all these examples to speakers in their native languages of, um, uh, uh, yeah, all these different like sentence constructions. And then they want to see whether or not there's overlap and the answer to these questions, like whether it's appropriate to say these sorts of things. Um, yeah. And then if they find like sufficient overlap, I think it counts as, uh, having a shared concept, so to speak. But if someone from that uh, research program, uh, the Natural Semantic Meta-Language Research Program is listening right now, they are probably cringing at that summary. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but um, it, 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 it's good enough for philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you call, the, you call the view or you say that the view commits you to um, uh, epistemic pragmatism. Um, and, uh, I, I, myself, I'm a big fan of the, the sentence from Rorty that you quote, which is the, the pragmatism is a vague, ambiguous, overworked term. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, uh, why you would, you would want to characterize the resulting picture, uh, in, in that way? I, I feel really sheepish about using the term pragmatism actually, just because, um, I never really considered myself a pragmatist. But within the past couple of years, when I was going around uh, saying things that were that led to this book, um, saying some of these ideas, other people described this view as a pragmatist one. And so I started to think, okay, well, maybe for, for the longest time, I was in a department that, um, although there are some pragmatists there, I was never really engaged with the, the literature on pragmatism. And so I... Um, when, when someone first suggested uh, that I was a pragmatist, I was like, no, 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 there's no way this is pragmatism. I've never even read pragmatism. Uh, but then, yeah, it, it turns out that there are some similarities. So the, the reason, well, I guess there are two reasons that I call the view a pragmatist one, or epistemic pragmatism. 
the first has to do with, um, I try and argue that if we're thinking about the purpose of the concept of knowledge, if we take that as primary in our theorizing, then we start to realize that there's something confused about the standard attempts um, to determine the semantics of knowledge descriptions by looking or identifying their truth conditions. So it moves away from this sort of standard truth conditional approach. And instead, I try and argue that um, this debate about the semantics of nose um, should be accounted for, we should account for the meaning of epistemic claims, not in terms of truth conditions, but rather by looking at um, the function of the practice of saying that people know things. And so the more natural approach I argue for is that we should ask what practical function epistemic evaluation serves us in communicating with other people. So I take that to be in line with um, at least some people who call themselves pragmatists, the kind of research program that they're engaged in. So that's the first, it has this kind of second order linguistic focus. That's the first reason that I, that I call it pra- uh, pragmatist, just because I think that epistemic evaluations are not um, representations of like how the world is, but rather they're just uh, expressions of our attitudes towards the ways we try and represent the world to be, so to speak. Like it marks the distinctions that we care about. Um, and then the other reason that I kind of plump for the word pragmatism is because in epistemology, a lot of people use the term pragmatic encroachment to describe this view that knowledge is partly determined by um, practical considerations, putting it very roughly. And so this is a kind of pragmatism. It allows for practical considerations, not purely, not just epistemic considerations to shape or determine whether someone knows something. Um, and yeah, it's, it's mainly for these two reasons that I go in for the pragmatist label. Well, fantastic. Both of those, by the way, um, in, in case it matters, <laughs> both of those commitments strike me. Uh, and as some people listening probably know, uh, you know, I live with some of this stuff pretty regularly. Uh, both of those commitments strike me as sort of just straightforwardly classical, classically pragmatist, not even newfangled pragmatism, but sort of straight up purse, purse James Dewey pragmatist commitment. So, so um, I wish we talked before the book came out because then I would have just said, like, here's this authority on pragmatism <laughs> and he says it's fine. So there. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that means for uh, <laughs> you know for the merit of the view uh, that it is uh, associated with 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 uh, with those particular folks. But um, uh, it does seem um, it does seem uh, properly characterized uh, as uh, roughly in their uh, well, that chapter started. That chapter started with the with a Rorty uh, quote, and I remember when I was uh, when I was starting the book um, on a visiting thing out in California. Um, Crystal Lawler, she was like, "Do not start it with Rorty. Like this is gonna this is gonna get you in trouble," sort of thing. Not because she's against Rorty, just because she thought that a lot of the reviewers might not be sympathetic with that um, style of pragmatism. <laughs> and in the end, I was like, I think I might not have put it in the original version. And then once it was accepted, reinserted it. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> um, I kind of miss him, uh, even though, uh, I, I, I don't, uh, we, I found myself, uh, his writing often infuriated me. Um, uh, he was, uh, it was good to have him around. Um, uh, so, you know, this actually is a nice segue to the, to the next thing I was interested in. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, 
and maybe this also raises some something we we mentioned earlier. You know, a lot of philosophical proposals that begin with a maneuver or the propo- the suggestion that we start in a different place or think about things in a different way, um, particularly in epistemology, but also in other kinds of uh, areas, maybe even particularly in value theoretic areas. Um, these kinds of maneuvers are often um, not so thinly disguised anti-skeptical maneuvers. Um, so, you know, start, I, I, I take it that the sort of knowledge first folks, uh, are just, this is just an anti-skeptical premise. You know, there is knowledge. Let's see what we can discern by looking at those instances of knowledge. And, um, I take it that the epistemology naturalized folks are also engaged in certain, um, a certain anti-skeptical program. Um, and, uh, I, I'm, Sure, you're familiar with the following thought. You know there are different, you know, different grades of anti-skepticism, um, and uh, it's not uncommon for anti-skeptical philosophers to, you know, sort of uh, to uh, push for the highest grade of anti-skepticism, which is some kind of view that renders the skeptical hypothesis um, unintelligible or inarticulable. Um, so think about certain externalists, right? The idea that you can't even say what skepticism is. Uh, your word, skepticism is true. Your words don't mean the things that uh, they're supposed to mean in order to formulate the thesis of skepticism. So um, I was really um, uh, refreshed. Uh, I was uh, encouraged. You know, I, I, um, maybe this makes me a bad pragmatist or it's the consequence of hanging out so much with Scott Aiken that, you know, I'm not anti-skeptical in that sense. I, I think it's a bad feature of a philosophical view that it aspires to make skepticism an inartic- you know, something you can't even articulate. So uh, if you're going to be anti-skeptical, I think you have to actually be, you know, preserve the ability to formulate what skepticism is. Um, so I was really relieved to find that the book has got a more complex relation to skepticism. Um and um, even to the point where uh, your um, the upshot of your discussion of skepticism is that you know there are certain contexts, certain cases, certain you know instances where you know raising more or less traditional skeptical scenarios is probably not out of bounds philosophically. Um, so, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I think yeah. So my sympathies are with you in the sense that um, I. Do, I am trying to, in a way, explain the not the nature and the force of the skeptic's argument. I, I don't want to just dismiss the skeptic. I take them very seriously. Um, skepticism, of course, kind of flies in the face of our ordinary practice. You know, we we all go around happily saying that we know lots of things, and so there's this there's this kind of clash of two perspectives, right? So you've got the everyday perspective, and then you've got um, the skeptical one, and that's one that we're kind of led to when we start to do philosophy, when we engage in philosophical reflection. And um, what I try and do in the book is to say that this kind of function first approach will provide us with some traction. It'll provide us with a way of resisting the skeptic's conclusion of saying that we know nothing or almost nothing, um, at least about the external world, uh, whilst also trying to show the temptation of skepticism and why it might be that sometimes uh, it makes sense to impose skeptical standards in certain situations. So what, yeah, what I end up trying to do is basically say that on the one hand, it seems like um, when we reflect on the practical point of epistemic evaluation, uh, it gives us a reason to think that skeptical standards are not going to be in place in ordinary contexts. And that's 
precisely because uh, skepticism runs against the purpose of having um, a concept of knowledge in the first place. So it's not that skeptical, it's not that skepticism itself is like so bad. It's just that it doesn't really mark out the distinctions that are important to us. So in everyday life, right, nobody really cares or considers whether uh, some kind of potential informant can, for instance, rule out radical skeptical possibilities where they can rule out that their brains and bats. And we wouldn't really expect people to do that precisely because we're fallible beings and no one can. Um, at least we can't tell that we're doing it. Depends on whether or not you want to go Williamsonian, but just bracketing that for a second. Um, it seems like it would be weird to have uh, a practice or a standard where um, we expected people to meet the skeptics' demands precisely because nobody can really do that. And this is where I mean it doesn't it doesn't really mark up the distinctions that we care about. So the skeptic, someone who seems to be imposing a kind of test that nobody could pass. Um, and it's in that way that I think skepticism runs against the purpose of having this practice of evaluating other people as knowers, because what we're doing, if the story I try and tell in the book is right, is that we need to find people who can contribute to the stock of information on which others can draw. And uh, if nobody qualifies, because we're using these sort of skeptical standards as reliable in that sense, um, then it looks like... Uh, we can't really have this practice, which is supposed to explain the, the very purpose of epistemic evaluation in the first place. Um, it, yeah, it's just requiring people to, um, it'd be really surprising, I guess, is the idea if we ended up with this concept uh, in our vocabulary that has no application in everyday life. I see. So when, but when are skeptical worries appropriate? Yeah, this is um, towards the last bit of the chapter on skepticism. I, I say that uh, I try and draw a distinction um, using the work of Bernard Williams. Uh, yeah, he's got this wonderful book on Descartes, and he distinguishes between uh, the pure inquirer and the practical inquirer. And uh, I really think it's a useful distinction. What I, what I try and say, although my thinking on this is still, still fairly fluid, is that... Um, in the context of everyday life, uh, we're in this project of the practical inquirer where there are certain kinds of demands that are placed on us, um, where we can't inquire forever. There are practical considerations, uh, other sorts of inquiries we have to engage in, uh, limited information, dependence on other people. And so we end up having to, um, in some sense, like lower our expectations where we don't try and meet these incredibly high standards that the skeptic thinks we should meet, but rather we have these ones that function in everyday life because this is, you know, what uh, our practice of epistemic evaluation is supposed to regulate. But I have sympathies with the skeptic, and so I say that doesn't mean that there aren't also other kinds of inquiry that we can get, engage in where we bracket the concerns of practical life and where once we bracket those considerations and we think about knowledge from this kind of purely epistemic perspective, um, it might be that uh, it's perfectly appropriate if you're engaged in that kind of inquiry to think that who counts as reliable is going to be someone who only meets the standards that are so good that they would satisfy the skeptic. Um, so I do try and make space for these different types of inquiry. Um, but ultimately, I think the purpose of the concept of knowledge is much more closely attached to the, um, the role of the practical inquirer. But yeah, I try and say it doesn't rule out this other possibility that um, 
sometimes we're confused about skeptical arguments or we think the skeptic's attacking our knowledge precisely because it's unclear what sort of uh, inquiry we're engaged in. So usually we're in practical inquiry, but then when we start doing philosophy, it looks like we might drift towards this pure inquiry where certain considerations of daily life are no longer on the table. And then that's what leads us to think that the skeptic's challenging our knowledge. That's the kind of diagnosis I try and go in for and being really um, yeah, open to both sides. I see. Very good. Um, so um, the you close the book with um, uh, the realization, the, the affirmation that um, knowledge is not the only uh, important um, concept that we reach for for epistemic evaluation. Um, and I take it that um, you're at least uh, committed, um, maybe not in any strong sense of that word, but uh, you're at least you're ready to think that the function first approach is the right approach to take for these other um, evaluative, epistemic evaluative concepts. And so the book closes with a discussion of the difference between knowledge as one such concept and understanding. Can you tell us a little bit about how understanding is a different kind of epistemic evaluation that might also lend itself to a function-first analysis? Sure, yeah. So although the book's called What's the Point of Knowledge, I do try and extend this approach yeah, to other concepts, and it ends with this investigation of understanding. And the, the primary aim of that chapter is to argue that our concept of knowledge and our concept of understanding are playing different social roles. So most of the book um, up until this point is basically arguing that, um, yeah, the concept of knowledge is to identify reliable informants. And I say that over and over in various different ways for about 250 pages. And then we get to this chapter on understanding where I say um, it's more plausible to think that the point of the concept of understanding is to identify what I call uh, good explainers, where a good explainer is someone who has more in a way, um, they have yeah more explanatory depth than the knower. So there's someone who can reliably evaluate explanations. They're not susceptible to believing in correct explanations. A, a good explainer is someone who can elaborate um, on points, often in their own words. They are really good at answering kind of closely related questions. They have a sense of the modal space, so they can answer questions about like, what if things have been different style questions. Um, and I try and argue that, uh, the reason we have these, the reason we think and speak in terms of knowing as well as understanding is because we're doing different things when we do that. And in some cases we're really just interested in flagging a reliable informant, which is a kind of lower standard, or in other cases, we're really interested in this, um, higher epistemic good, this understanding, and that, um, it really depends on the kind of inquiry you're engaged in. So it could be true that in morality, for instance, or in certain scientific endeavors, understanding is the epistemic goal that we're going after. Whereas in daily life, um, knowledge is maybe more important. And so in the book, what I end with is, um, I've spent a lot of time arguing about the value of the concept of knowledge and this practice of saying that people know things. And then I conclude by reflecting on, well, uh, is this really more valuable than, say, having a concept of understanding that saying people understand things? Um, and this is a chapter which I think will very much upset my postdoc supervisor, Stephen Grimm, because I spent three years working on a project on human understanding. And that project was motivated by the idea that um, uh, we epistemologists have had a kind of myopic focus on 
knowledge. And instead, we should be looking at understanding as perhaps the kind of holy, new holy grail of epistemology, right? The, the thing we should be aiming for. Um, and in this chapter, I actually argue that that's totally misguided. I say that knowledge is, in fact, uh, playing a much more valuable social role than understanding and that it's more closely related to um, things like uh, signaling the appropriate end of inquiries and that um, it's also closely tied to norms of assertion and practical reasoning in a way that understanding isn't. So although it might be true that understanding is a really worthwhile endeavor, in some sense, it's our limitations that lead us to more often conclude or be happy with achieving knowledge rather than achieving this other thing, understanding, um, which might be uh, a bit higher of a kind of epistemic fruit to reach for. Something like that. Right. Cause it seems that the, good explainer is somebody who's a kind of theorizer, right? He's giving you a theory of something in, all, in, in many cases, whereas, you know, we're looking for information. We're not looking for <laughs> lots of context. We're just looking, you know, we're looking for bankable information, you know, a way forward rather than, uh, you know, a theory of how the car works. We just want some information about how to get it going again, right? Exactly. Yeah. When you go to the mechanic, you just want to know that your car is working. You don't really care much about like understanding the why, so to speak. Um, right. That would require much more information. Uh, yeah. Well, good. Um, so, Michael, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, this is a fabulous book. I encourage all the the people listening to us right now uh, to go out and and uh, pick up what is the point of knowledge. But um, uh, what's next on your research agenda? Um, so you kind of men mentioned it a bit at the beginning. It's that uh, I'm now interested in the intersection of um, questions in political philosophy and epistemology. So my work's taken a bit of a political turn. And yeah, I'm now in the early stages of writing a book on the role of truth and irrationality in politics. So there's been a lot written about things like post-truth, alternative facts, you know, echo chambers, uh, things like that. And I've noticed that scholars often tend to lament the fact that voters are you know, ill-informed or highly biased. Um, but in a way, I'm, I'm still very interested in this question about how the demands of practical life shape uh, our epistemology. And so in this book, I'm thinking about how uh, people's lack of knowledge can be entirely consistent with like, rational, intelligent behavior, precisely because getting informed is so difficult in modern society, especially when given the complexity of modern government and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, I'm interested in writing about the various ways in which the demands to expect people to be informed or to be epistemically rational conflict with uh, the sort of practical demands of daily life and exploring this tension. So the heart of the new book is supposed to be that in many situations, um, we should maybe be thinking about actually relegating the role of truth in our in political life and instead focusing on things like deferring to the appropriate uh, authorities or the role of emotion in politics and things like that. Well, excellent. Um, these are uh, issues that um, I care a great deal about. Not that that is uh, a bellwether of any <laughs> uh, of any importance in any broader sense, but um, I will keep an eye out for uh, for for the next uh, for that next project. Um, but um, Michael Hannon, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, this has been really great to talk to you about your book. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And great. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today for our discussion. Uh, I've been talking to Michael Hannon. Uh, we've been talking about his new book. It is titled, What is the Point of Knowledge? A Function-First Epistemology. Uh, the book has just been published by Oxford University Press. 
Thank you for listening and bye for now. <laughs>